It's Psalm 49. This is another of the psalms by or for the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, pretty interesting group. <clears throat> You'd remember the rebellion in the wilderness, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the earth opened and swallowed them. And it would seem from the reference in Jude to the, the gainsaying of Kori and uh, a couple of other uh, hints, I think, in the Old Testament record that Korah was the ringleader, really, of it all. But the record uh, records that his, his sons did not die. And I think that shows that they separated themselves consciously from the apostasy of their father. And tracing through the sons of Korah in the, the Chronicles, genealogies, and other references to them, these guys were really zealous uh, for the Lord. They, they really were. And I think that, just straight away, shows us that we can actually overcome bad background. There is no such thing, really, as just being a hopeless victim of your background. Uh, we are a new creation in Christ, and the old things are passed away. And yet the victim mentality is very strong, and with all the pop psychology that there is around, it's quite popular these days to sort of excuse our behavior or excuse other people's behavior on their background. And of course, background does affect behavior, but the point is that in Christ, we really can be new creatures, new creations, even though that may require a, a conscious break with the past. And looking at uh, all the Psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah, they all seem to have some allusion to the historical uh, background that, that, uh, that they came from. Now, in, in this Psalm, of course, it talks about death. Well, of course, they had uh, seen their, their father uh, and their, their, their sort of wider family perhaps uh, die uh, in, the, in the great earthquake that swallowed them up. And they went down into the earth. And here we keep on reading about how the dead go down into Sheol, in, into the grave. And it could, you could reason back and say that there maybe was a financial or material, shall we say, motive in Korah's rebellion. Because here they're singing a psalm about how vain it is to follow materialism because you'll only be swallowed up in the grave just as Korah had been in any case. And they make the point, these uh, sons of Korah, uh, that this is what happens to a lot of people, that they put material gain before God and so they shall die and ultimately stay dead forever. And we, we read in, in verse... Uh, Verse 13 here, their posterity approve their sayings. Their posterity, that is their, their children, approve. They, they think, yeah, dad was good, you know, he was a great guy because he built up wealth and left it all behind. And here they're saying that that's not how it should be. And of course the sons of Korah were a living example of people who did not approve the behavior of their father. Now, in looking at all the Psalms, you can always make various cases for authorship. And the first uh, book of Psalms that we have here, we're told, are Psalms of David. And yet, why then do we have Psalms of Korah in the, the first book of Psalms, which is called the, the Psalms of David? And why can you make different cases for authorship of different Psalms? I suggest that what happened was that under inspiration, 
those original psalms were rewritten by various authors over the years. And that's why you can trace the hand, for example, of David also in all this. Um, because you read that in verse 4, that I'm going to um, open this riddle on the harp. Well, straight away you think about David, uh, the, uh, the great harp player and singer of psalms with his harp. Now, that, I think, has some relevance when you come down to verse 10. He sees that wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless also perish and leave their wealth to others. Now, that is absolutely the spirit of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, David's son, pretty well says that in Ecclesiastes several times. So, I think then that you've got a, a case here of Solomon repeating his father's teaching and approving it, whereas he himself was the materialist extraordinaire. He admits that, really, in Ecclesiastes, and his heart turned away from, or was turned away from God, uh, by his wives to idolatry. Uh, but, you know, he, he built everything that he wanted. He absolutely went down the road of materialism right to the end. And there we start to get an uncomfortable lesson because we would all agree with what we read here, that materialism and building up something great for yourself is foolish. And what's the point? Because you can't take it with you. But even the most materialistic of people, in my experience, millionaires, multi-multi-millionaires, will say the same. Oh, you know, I despise materialism. I, I don't do it for, you know, I don't run all these companies or whatever uh, for the sake of any, you know, material gain. No, I do it for people. I've heard that so many times. But then they sold their souls for getting wealthy. And <clears throat> isn't it strange that nobody would really admit to being a materialist for the sake of it? Everybody would say, ah, oh, yeah, there's some other motive. I'm doing it for my kids, or whatever it might be. <clears throat> but whatever that motive is, is not touched upon here. We're simply told very clearly throughout the psalm that we've just read that building up wealth and personal possession for yourself is not the way of the believer. And we're told that that is actually folly. It is a fool who does that. And of course, the great paradox is that it is the wise, as they are counted, of this world who do just this, who build up wealth for themselves. And yet we're told here that that is the epitome of foolishness. Now, in verse 2, he says, look, I want, or they say, the sons of Korah, or David, whoever it is, says, look, I want everyone to pay attention to this, both low and high, rich and poor, together. So this might appear to be an appeal to the wealthy, or those who want to be wealthy, but the point is, it is also an appeal to the poor. Because for them, just as much as the rich man, there is this illusion that if only I can own my own property, if I can own a big property, a bigger property than I already have, then, you know, that is my aim in life. And in practical terms, do we not see this so many times? I'm not coming to Bible school because, well, I'm busy at work. I just don't have time to read the Bible every day. I don't have time, really, to get involved in uh, the work of God's people because I'm busy. I got companies to run. You don't know how busy I am. Well, I serve God in my own way. You know? 
whether you're rich or poor, these sort of reasonings crop up all the time. And here in the psalm, we have absolutely, uh, an absolute condemnation of this sort of attitude without any question. And it's no good saying, oh, yeah, tick the box, I agree with you, David, or the sons of Korah, totally, absolutely. Because, you know, everybody would say that. And my point about verse 10 being so similar to the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes is that Solomon also ticked the box and actually took this up and preached it to other people when his heart was totally far from this in reality. Down verse 4, I will bend my ear to a proverb and I will open my riddle on the harp. We sort of expect something rather abstract to come now. And actually the psalm is not abstract at all. It's a straight up statement about the folly of materialism. But why then is it called a parable and a riddle? Well, I think even though it is very straightforward in its language, there is no parabolic element in any of this, as we might consider uh, parables. The point is that it is a mystery, it is a riddle and a parable to so many people that do not seek wealth. Be content with what you have. Whether that is much or little, don't strive for all this uh, material uh, uh, possession, because verse 11, their inward thought is, and this is uh, piercing, penetrating psychology, their inward thought is that their houses will endure forever. And so they name their lands after themselves. That is our inward thought. Even a man of 101 years old still has that inbuilt assumption that I shall wake up and live tomorrow. And the fact is we shall not. The fact is we are mortal. And one day, if Jesus stays away, your name and my name will be chiseled maybe on a, on a gravestone, and that will be it. That will be over. And the whole point is that we are to live our lives now in the light of that understanding that we are mortal. And again, everyone would say, sure, man is mortal. Uh, and particularly for, for those of us who uh, reject the immortality of the soul on the basis of some of the verses actually that we have here in the psalm that uh, those who those with riches and who are without understanding verse 20 are just like the animals that perish uh, we who understand those things can easily just tick the box you know so psychologically in our own minds and think sure i understand that death is unconsciousness absolutely man is mortal that is that is so well, there is no immortal soul, etc. But if we really believe that, that gives an urgency and intensity to every moment that we live, because we are mortal and we shall not live forever. And that intensity of life is what adds significance and meaning to human life, rather than just existing almost semi-consciously. Now, this message, verse 1, is to be taught to all you peoples, to the Gentile world, all you inhabitants of the world. This is definitely an Old Testament example of reaching out with the message to the whole world. In the Great Commission, when the Lord Jesus tells the disciples and us, therefore, to go into all the world and spread the gospel to everybody, this was actually building on passages like verse 1 here in our psalm, and so many of the Psalms. 
And I think that David, after his sin with Bathsheba, really grasped that. So many of the Psalms he wrote are talking about a witness to the whole world. And that witness is not sort of a tut-tutting, sort of telling the world, you know what, you're stupid to be materialists. This message about materialism and mortality is actually good news. Because to be freed from that way of thinking, that it all depends upon how you know, how much I can attain for myself in this world, to be freed from that, that is good news. And to actually have a reason for living beyond just getting lands or houses in your own name. And so he says in verse 5, uh, I'm reading from the AV, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? Now, the translation there is difficult. It could mean, when iniquity at my heels compasses me about, talking about his death as a result of the serpent biting his heel, in the terms of Genesis 3.15, or it could speak of the wicked, as the ESV has it, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. But seeing the context is about death, I prefer to go with the first option, that's a quote from the ASV, when iniquity at my heels compasses me about. And I think it's a reference to death, and the days of evil would then be an intensive plural for the the great day of the great evil, which for every man is the day of death. And yet he says, why should I fear? There is a, a way of living and being which does not fear death, which does not need to fear death, uh, because you have lived your life in such a way that was taking fully into account your mortality. Now, he then goes on to uh, almost despise materialism. Uh, let's take verse, uh, verse 16, which in the AV says, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich. And the idea is not fear, the idea is awe or respect. Don't be respectful of someone who becomes wealthy. Now, we live in a world where if you become wealthy, if you make it, you are to be respected. I caught myself saying this to Cindy the other day about somebody, uh, something to the effect, I, I said, you know, pretty smart guy, uh, and I said it, I guess, with respect in my voice, pretty smart guy, you know, came from nowhere, and, uh, you know, he's uh, done pretty well for himself, he's got uh, several, several holiday homes and uh, this, that, and the other, and then, you know, do not give that respect. That is what this psalm is saying. Don't be in awe when somebody makes the grade. The guy, the, summarizing this psalm, the guy's an idiot. That's what it's saying. Their glory, verse 14, or the ESV says their form, shall just crumble in the grave. And yet he says, verse 15, but my soul shall be... Uh, be redeemed from the power of the grave the resurrection now their glory is paralleled with my soul my being now I know that the immortal soul as propagated by by the Greek philosophers is not Bible teaching but we need to just bear in mind that the word soul this Hebrew idea of nefesh it's got a, a very wide meaning and that's the difficulty in trying to understand it, that it really means, in a sense, the person. 
who you essentially are. It's paralleled here, as I say, with their glory, their form, their image, their life, etc. They shall perish, but my soul, my glory, my form, shall be redeemed from the grave, shall be resurrected. And I think what that means is that the Duncan who is today is the Duncan, in one sense, who shall eternally be at the resurrection. And bearing that in mind, that in the same way as Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday and as he shall always be, you know, the Jesus who loved little children in his ministry is the same Jesus with whom we have to do today. And this is how he shall eternally be. He wasn't showing one face of a multi-faced personality, and he's not going to change fundamentally when he comes back. It's not so that he came as the meek little lamb to the slaughter and he's going to roar back as an angry lion. They're just different uh, aspects of the same personality uh, that he has always had. So the essential you and the essential me will not change. It will be, as it were, set in stone eternally at the resurrection. And that thought, I think, shows us the, the huge, colossal importance of character development development of personality, a spiritual personality now, because it is who you will eternally be. This is why God is so intensely at work. He tries me every moment, Job came to realize, it, to get us there, to get us to be the person whom we shall eternally be. So although we don't have an immortal soul that continues after death, in the classical mistaken view of that, it is also true that our soul, in the sense of our person, our personality, our form, our glory, as the AV puts it in verse 14, that will be given to us again at the resurrection, and that is who we shall eternally be. So then, let's not be like those who praise their ancestors, their fathers, uh, and other people because they made it. Actually, this kind of thing the psalm is implying is, is something that we should almost despise. Because it is folly. It is absolute folly. Now, the, uh, the key verses, I, I suppose, uh, and in terms of the psalm structure, what appears to be at the centre of it, in terms of semantics, in terms of meaning, uh, are there in verses 7 and 8. None of them, none of these rich guys, can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, it's valuable, it's expensive. So then, what does that mean? I think the point is that these rich people think that money can buy everything, and so, verse 2, so do the poor. The poor also think that if you've got money you can buy anything. Even the disciples were, I think, a bit mistaken on that point, that... Wow, are you really telling us that uh, the rich won't be, won't be saved sort of thing, they say once to Jesus? And I think that uh, the point is here that only God can redeem your brother. You cannot do anything by, in terms of money to redeem him. And yet why doesn't it say, none of you can by any means redeem yourself? nor give to God a ransom for yourself. That surely would be more in line with the theme of the psalm, to tell the wealthy people and the poor people, look, you can have money, but money can't buy redemption. 
but your redemption, you will die, and so therefore, what's the point of thinking that your money can buy your redemption? Well, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for his brother. You can't buy your brother eternity. And I think it's put like that, because the implication is that the greatest wealth that you have is your ability to get redemption for your brother by bringing that person to God. Because God, in his Son, Jesus, is the Saviour. Jesus, Yahweh, is Saviour, Yahweh's salvation. So then, we cannot uh, save our brother ourselves, but we can bring somebody to salvation, to God's salvation, which is in Jesus. And so, in that sense, we can save our brother. Do you not know that if you uh, rebuke a sinner, you know, at the end of James, you, you can save a soul from death. You can do this. Because you can bring somebody to repentance or to, to God, to Jesus. So, my suggestion is then that it's worded in the way it is in verse 7, to imply that, the greatest wealth that you've got is your ability to redeem your brother. Not, of course, by your money, uh, but by bringing someone to God. And what are these sons of Korah doing? What's David doing? They're singing a psalm that they want everybody to hear and pay attention to. They're trying to do just that, to bring their brother to repentance, to God, to God's salvation, which in our day is in Jesus. So then, the gospel that you and I have, that we hold in our hands, is the greatest wealth. And yet, so many times, people would say, yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm not into evangelizing. I, I, you know, I, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm serving God by running my businesses or by working away at my low-paid job and trying to do an extra job to get more money. And that's, look, buddy, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing for God. Well, yeah, you know, I understand that we need money to live. I understand that. But the point is that the greatest wealth we have got is the gospel of redemption. And by using that, you can, in that sense, redeem your brother, because we are workers together with the Lord Jesus. And so that should be our wealth, and that should be the issue in life that is the most wonderful thing for us. Not, you know, the fact that you've got a, a slightly better mobile phone because you worked at your minimum wage job and saved a, a bit of money bit by bit to just get that latest model, or because you have now got another holiday home, or because you've now got your wife uh, a very nice car and you've even bought your your 18-year-old son a car now, etc., and yeah, well, I, that's all love, that's all I did for God, etc. The greatest wealth that you've got, the greatest thing that you can do, is to bring your brother to redemption. And all the money in the world can't do that. You don't need money to preach the gospel. And uh, we see that in our, our work here in Latvia and all over the world, that it is the poor of this world who artlessly manage to bring other people to redemption. They don't have any money 
They don't need that. You don't need money. You just need to talk to people. And we know all that in our heart. So let's have enough excuses and let's watch out for, as he calls it here, your inward thought, which is that somehow you shall live tomorrow. Because you might not. You really very well might not live tomorrow. And in any case, your mortality, my mortality, is an absolute fact that is so obvious that we can actually miss it. And what is left for us then is in the spirit of the, of the sons of Korah and of David to go into the world, into the world around us, and take this truly good news to men and women.